CD3 Below stairs there was only Sean Ogg, who was cleaning the oven of the huge iron stove and reflecting that this was no job for a military man. Where's everyone gone? Sean leapt up, banging his head on the stove. Oh, uh, sorry, miss. Um, everyone's, uh, everyone's down in the square, miss. I'm only here because Mrs Scorbick said she'd have my hide if I didn't get all that yuck off. What's happening in the square, then? They say there's a couple of witches having a real set too, miss. What, not your mother and Granny Weatherwax? Oh, no, miss. Some new witch. In Lancre? A new witch? I think that's what Mum said. I'm going to have a look. Oh, oh, uh, I don't think that'd be a good idea, miss, said Sean. Magrat drew herself up regally. We happen to be queen, she said, nearly. So you don't tell one one can't do things or one'll have you cleaning the privies. But uh, I does clean the privies, said Sean in a reasonable voice. Even the garde-robe. And that's going to go for a start, said Magrat, shuddering. One's seen it. Doesn't bother me, miss. It'll give me Wednesday afternoons free, said Sean. But what I meant was, you'll have to wait till I've gone down to the armoury to fetch my horn for the fanfare. One won't need a fanfare, thank you very much. But you've got to have a fanfare, miss. One can blow my own trumpet, thank you. Yes, miss. Miss what? Miss Queen. And don't you forget it. Magrat arrived at as near to a run as was possible in the Queen outfit, which ought to have had casters. She found a circle of several hundred people, and near the edge a very pensive Nanny Og. "'What's happening, Nanny?' Nanny turned. "'Oh, sorry, didn't hear no fanfare,' she said. "'I'd curtsy, only it's me legs.' Magrat looked past her at the two seated figures in the circle. "'What are they doing?' "'Staring contest. "'But they're looking at the sky.' "'Bugger that dear Manda girl. "'She's got Esme trying to outstare the sun,' said Nanny Og. "'No looking away, no blinking.' "'How long have they been doing it?' "'About an hour,' said Nanny gloomily. "'That's terrible.' "'It's bloody stupid is what it is,' said Nanny. "'Can't think what's got into Esme, as if power's all there is to witching. "'She knows that. Witching's not power. "'It's how you harness it.' There was a pale gold haze over the circle from magical fallout. "'They'll have to stop at sunset,' said Magrat. "'Esme won't last until sunset,' said Nanny. "'Look at her, all slumped up. "'I suppose you couldn't use some magic to... Um, "'Magrat began. "'Talk sense,' said Nanny. "'If Esme found out, she'd kick me round the kingdom. "'Anyway, the others had spot it. "'Perhaps... "'We could create a small cloud or something,' said Magrat. "'No, that's cheating.' "'Well, you always cheat.' "'I cheat for myself. You can't cheat for other people.' Granny Weatherwax slumped again. "'I could have it stopped,' said Magrat. "'You'd make an enemy for life.' "'I thought Granny was my enemy for life.' "'If you think that, my girl, you've got no understanding,' said Nanny. "'One day you'll find out Esme Weatherwax is the best friend you ever had. "'But we've got to do something. Can't you think of anything?' "'Nanny Og looked thoughtfully at the circle. "'Occasionally a little wisp of smoke curled up from her pipe. "'The magical duel was subsequently recorded in Birdwhistle's Book of Legends "'and Antiquities of the Ramtops, and went as follows.' 
The duel being ninety minutes advanced, a small boy-child upon a sudden ran across the square and stepped within the magic circle, whereup he fell down with a terrible scream, also a flash. The oldie witch looked around, got out of her chair, picked him up, and carried him to his grandmother, then went back to her seat. Whilom the young witch never averted her eyes from the sun. But the other young witches stopped the duel, averring, Look, Diamanda has won, the reason being Weatherwax looked away, whereupon the child's grandmother said in a loud voice, Oh yes, pull the other oney, it have got bells on. This is not a contest about power, you stupid girls. It is a contest about witchcraft. Do you not even begin to know what being a witch is? Is a witch someone who would look round when she heard a child scream? And the townspeople said, yes. That was wonderful, said Mrs. Quarney, the storekeeper's wife. The whole town cheered. A true mythic quality. They were in the tavern's back room. Granny Weatherwax was lying on a bench with a damp towel over her face. Yes, it was, wasn't it? said Magrat. That girl was left without a leg to stand on, everyone says. Yes, said Magrat. Strutted off with her nose in a sling, as they say. Yes, said Magrat. Is the little boy all right? They all looked at Pusey, who was sitting in a suspicious puddle on the floor in the corner with a bag of sweets and a sticky ring around his mouth. "'Right as rain,' said Nanny Og. "'Nothing worse than a bit of sunburn. "'He screams his head off the least little thing, bless him,' she said proudly, "'as if this was some kind of rare talent. "'Gither,' said Granny from under the towel. "'Yes?' "'You knows I don't normally touch strong liquor, "'but I've heard you mention the use of brandy for medicinal purposes.' "'Coming right up,' Granny raised her towel and focused one eye on Magrat. "'Good afternoon, your pre-Majesty,' she said. "'Come to be gracious at me, have you?' "'Well done,' said Magrat coldly. "'Can one have a word with you, na uh, uh, Mrs Og, outside?' "'Right you are, your Queen,' said Nanny. "'In the alley outside, Magrat spun round with her mouth open. "'You!' Nanny held up her hand. "'I know what you're going to say,' she said, "'but there wasn't any danger to the little mite. "'But you—' "'Me?' said Nanny. "'I hardly did anything. "'They didn't know he was going to run into the circle, did they? "'They both reacted just like they normally would, didn't they? "'Fair's fair.' "'Well, in a way, but no one cheated,' said Nanny. "'Magret sagged into silence. "'Nanny patted her on the shoulder. "'So you won't be telling anyone you saw me wave a bag of sweets at him, will you?' "'She said.' No, Nanny. There's a good going to be queen. Nanny? Yes, dear? Magrat took a deep breath. How did Verence know when we were coming back? It seems to Magrat that Nanny thought for just a few seconds too long. Oh, couldn't say, she said at last. Kings are a bit magical, mind. They can cure dandruff on that. Probably woke up one morning and his royal prerogative gave him a tickle. The trouble with Nanny Og was that she always looked as if she was lying. Nanny Og had a pragmatic attitude to the truth. She told it if it was convenient, and she couldn't be bothered to make up something more interesting. "'Keeping busy up there, are you?' she said. "'One's doing very well, thank you,' said Magrat, with what she hoped was a queenly hauteur. "'Which one?' said Nanny. "'Which one what?' 
Which one's doing very well? Me. Oh, you should have said, said Nanny, her face poker straight. So long as you're keeping busy, that's the important thing. He knew we were coming back, said Magrat firmly. He'd even got the invitation sorted out. Oh, by the way, there's one for you. I know. One got it this morning, said Nanny. Got all that fancy nibbling on the edges in gold and everything. Who's reserve up? Magrat had long ago got a handle on Nanny Ogg's world view. RSVP, she said. It means you ought to say if you're coming. Oh, one'll be along all right. Catch one staying away, said Nanny. Has one's Jason sent one his invite yet? Thought not. Not a skilled man with a pen, our Jason. Invitation to what? said Magrat. She was getting fed up with ones. Didn't Verence tell one? said Nanny. It's a special play that's been written special for you. Oh, yes, said Magrat. The entertainment. Right, said Nanny. It's going to be on Midsummer's Eve. Eh, it's got to be special on Midsummer's Eve, said Jason Ogg. The door to the smithy had been bolted shut. Within were the eight members of the Lancra Morris men, six times winners of the Fifteen Mountains All-Comers Morris Championship. Three times outright, once after eleven hours extra time, and twice when the other finalists ran away. Now getting to grips with a new art form. I feel a right twit, said Bestiality Carter, Lancra's only baker. A dress on. I just hope my wife doesn't see me. Says here, said Jason Ogg, his enormous forefinger hesitantly tracing its way along the page, that it's a beautiful story of the love of the Queen of the Fairies, that's you, Bestiality. Thank you very much. For a mortal man, plus a humorous interlude with comic artisans. What's an artisan? said Weaver the Thatcher. Dunno, a type of, well, uh, I reckon Jason scratched his head. Yeah, uh, they've got them down on the plains. I, I repaired a pump for one once, artisan wells. What's comic about them? Well, maybe people fall down them in a funny way. Why can't we do a Morris like normal, said Obadiah Carpenter the tailor, who was also general poacher, cesspit cleaner and approximate carpenter with a couple of nails that'll stay up all right. Morris is is for every day, said Jason. We got to do something cultural. This come all the way from Aunt Moorpork. We could do the stick and bucket dance, volunteered Baker the Weaver. No one is to do the stick and bucket dance ever again, said Jason. Old Mr Thrum still walks with a limp, and it were three months ago. Weaver the Thatcher squinted at his copy of the script. Who's this bugger Axion Omnis? he said. I don't think much of my part, said Carpenter, is too small. It's his poor wife I feel sorry for, said Weaver automatically. Why? said Jason. The thing about iron is that you generally don't have to think fast in dealing with it. And why's there got to be a lion in it? said Baker the Weaver. Cause it's a play, said Jason. No one would want to see it if it had a, a donkey in it. Oh, I can just see people coming to see a play because it had a, had a donkey in it. This play was written by a real playsmith. I, I, I can just see a real playsmith putting, putting donkeys in a play. 
He says he'd be very interested to hear how we get on. Now, now, just you all shut up. I don't feel like the Queen of the Fairies, moaned Bestiality Carter. Well, it's like this. The Carter parents were a quiet and respectable Lancre family who got into a bit of a mix-up when it came to naming their children. First, they had four daughters who were christened Hope, Chastity, Prudence and Charity, because naming girls after virtues is an ancient and unremarkable tradition. Then their first son was born, and out of some misplaced idea about how this naming business was done, he was called Anger Carter, followed later by Jealousy Carter, Bestiality Carter and Covetousness Carter. Life being what it is, Hope turned out to be a depressive, Chastity was enjoying life as a lady of negotiable affection in Ankh-Morpork, Prudence had thirteen children, and Charity expected to get a dollar's change out of seventy-five pence. Whereas the boys had grown into amiable, well-tempered men, and Bestiality Carter was, for example, very kind to animals. "'You'll grow into it,' said Weaver. "'I hope not.' "'And, and you've got to rehearse,' said Jason." "'There is no room,' said Thatcher the Carter. "'Well, I ain't doing it where anyone else can see me,' said Bestiality. "'Even if we go out in the woods somewhere, people will be bound to see... "'Me? In a dress?' "'They won't recognise you in your makeup,' said Weaver. "'Makeup?' "'Yeah, and your wig,' said Taylor, the other Weaver. "'He's right, though.' said Weaver. If we're going to make fools of ourselves, I don't want no one to see me until we're good at it. Somewhere off the beaten track, like, said Thatcher the Carter. Out in the country, said Tinker the Tinker. Where no one goes, said Carter. Jason scratched his cheese-grater chin. He was bound to think of somewhere. And who's going to play Exeunt Omnis, said Weaver. He doesn't have much to say, does he? The coach rattled across the featureless plains. The land between Ankh Morpork and the Ramtops was fertile, well cultivated, and dull, dull, dull. Travel broadens the mind. This landscape broadened the mind because the mind just flowed out from the ears like porridge. It was the kind of landscape where if you saw a distant figure cutting cabbages, you'd watch him until he was out of sight because there was simply nothing else for the eye to do. I spy, said the bursar, with my little eye. Something beginning with H. Oh, no. Horizon, said Ponder. You guessed. Of course I guessed. I'm supposed to guess. We've had S for sky, C for cabbage, O for, 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 for ook, and there's nothing else. I'm not going to play any more if you're going to guess. The bursar pulled his hat down over his ears and tried to curl up on the hard seat. "'There'll be lots to see in Lancre,' said the Arch-Chancellor. "'The only piece of flat land they've got up there is in a museum.' Ponder said nothing. "'Used to spend whole summers up there,' said Ridcully. He sighed. "'You know, things could have been very different.' Ridcully looked around. If you're going to relate an intimate piece of personal history, you want to be sure it's going to be heard. The librarian looked out at the jolting scenery. He was sulking. This had a lot to do with a new bright blue collar around his neck, with the word Pongo on it. Someone was going to suffer for this. The bursar was trying to use his hat like a limpet uses its shell. There was this girl. 
Ponder Stibbons, chosen by a cruel fate to be the only one listening, looked surprised. He was aware that technically even the Arch-Chancellor had been young once. After all, it was just a matter of time. Common sense suggested that wizards didn't flash into existence, aged seventy and weighing nineteen stone. But common sense needed reminding. He felt he ought to say something. "'Pretty, was she, sir?' he said. "'No, no, I can't say she was. "'Striking, that's the word. "'Tall, hair so blonde it was nearly white, "'and eyes like gimlets, I tell you.' "'Ponder tried to work this out. "'You don't mean that dwarf who runs the delicatessenine?' "'He began. "'I mean you always got the impression "'she could see right through you,' said Ridcully, "'slightly more sharply than he'd intended. "'And she could run.' He lapsed into silence again, staring at the newsreels of memory. "'I would have married her, you know,' he said. Ponder said nothing. "'When you're a cork in someone else's stream of consciousness, all you can do is spin and bob in the eddies.' "'What a summer,' murmured Ridcully. "'Very like this one, really.' Crop circles were bursting like raindrops, and, 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 well, I was having doubts, you know. Magic didn't seem to be enough. I was a bit lost. I'd have given it all up for her. Every blasted octogram and magic spell, without a second thought. You know, when they say things like, she had a laugh like a mountain stream, I'm not personally familiar with it, said Ponder, but I have read... "'Poetry, that load of cobblers' poetry,' said Ridcully. "'I've listened to mountain streams, and they just go trickle-trickle-gurgle. "'And you get them things in them, you know, insect things with little... "'Anyway, doesn't sound like laughter at all, is my point. "'Poets always get it wrong. "'It's like she had lips like cherries, small, round, and got a stone in the middle. <laughs> "'He shut his eyes. "'After a while, Ponder said, "'So what happened, sir?' What? The girl you were telling me about? What girl? This girl. Oh, that girl. Oh, she, she turned me down. Said there were things she wanted to do. Said there'd be time enough. There was another pause. What happened then? Ponder prompted. Happened? <gasps> what do you think happened? I went off and studied. Term started. Wrote her a lot of letters, but she never answered them. "'Probably never got them. They probably eat the mail up there. "'Next year I was studying all summer and never had time to go back. "'Never did go back. Exams and so on. "'Expect she's dead now. Or some fat old granny with a dozen kids. "'Would have wed her like a shot. Like a shot.' "'Ridcully scratched his head. "'I just wish I could remember her name.' "'He stretched out with his feet on the bursar.' "'It's funny, that,' he said. "'Can't even remember her name. Ugh. "'She could outrun a horse.' "'Kneel and deliver!' "'The coach rattled to a halt. "'Ridcully opened an eye. Uh, "'What's that?' he said. "'Ponder jerked away from a reverie of lips-like mountain streams "'and looked out of the window. "'I think,' he said, "'It's a very small highwayman.' "'The coachman peered down at the figure in the road. "'It was hard to see much from this angle "'because of the short body and the wide hat. "'It was like looking at a well-dressed mushroom with a feather in it. 
I do apologise for this, said the very small highwayman. I find myself a little short. The coachman sighed and put down the reins. Properly arranged hold-ups by the bandit's guild were one thing, but he was blowed if he was going to be threatened by an outlaw that came up to his waist and didn't even have a crossbow. You little bastard, he said. I'm going to knock your block off. He peered closer. What's that on your back? A hump? Ah, you've noticed the stepladder, said the low highwayman. Let me demonstrate. What's happening? said Rid Cully back in the coach. Um, a dwarf has just climbed up a small stepladder and kicked the coachman in the middle of the road, said Ponder. That's something you don't see every day, said Rid Cully. He looked happy. Up to now the journey had been quite uneventful. Now he's coming towards us. Oh, oh, good. The highwayman stepped over the groaning body of the driver and marched towards the door of the coach, dragging his stepladder behind him. He opened the door. Your money, or, I'm sorry to say, uh, your... A blast of octarine fire blew his hat off. The dwarf's expression did not change. I wonder if I might be allowed to rephrase my demands. Ridcully looked the elegantly dressed stranger up and down, or rather, down and further down. You don't look like a dwarf, he said, apart from the height, that is. Don't look like a dwarf apart from the height? I mean, I mean, the helmet and iron boots department is among those you are lacking in, said Ridcully. The dwarf bowed and produced a slip of pasteboard from one grubby but lace-clad sleeve. My card, he said. It read, Giamo Casanunda, world's second greatest lover. We never sleep. Finest swordsman, soldier of fortune, outrageous liar, stepladders repaired. Ponder peered over Ridcully's shoulder. Are you really an outrageous liar? No. Why are you trying to rob coaches, then? I'm afraid I was waylaid by bandits. Uh, but it, it says here, said Ridcully, that you are a finest swordsman. I was outnumbered. How many of them were there? Three million. Hop in, said Ridcully. Cassanunder threw his stepladder into the coach and then peered into the gloom. Is that an ape asleep in there? Yes. The librarian opened one eye. What about the smell? He won't mind. Hadn't you better apologise to the coachman? said Ponder. No, but I could kick him again harder if he likes. And and, and that's the bursar, said Ridcully, pointing to exhibit B, who was sleeping the sleep of the near-terminally overdosed on dried frog pills. Hey, the bursar, bursar! No, he's out like a light. Just push him under the seat. Can you play cripple Mr. Onion? Not very well. Capital. Half an hour later, Ridcully owed the dwarf 8,000 ankh dollars. But I put it on my visiting card, Casanunda pointed out. Outrageous liar, right there. Yes, yes, but I, I thought you were lying. Ridcully sighed, and to Ponder's amazement, produced a bag of coins from some inner recess. They were large coins and looked suspiciously realistic and golden. Casanunda might have been a libidinous soldier of fortune by profession, but he was a dwarf by genetics, and there are some things dwarfs know. Mm.
he said. You don't have Outrageous Liar on your visiting card by any chance? No, said Ridcully excitedly. It's just that I can recognise chocolate money when I see it. You know, said Ponder, as the coach jolted along a canyon, this reminds me of that famous logical puzzle. Mm, what logical puzzle? said the Arch-Chancellor. Well, said Ponder, gratified at the attention, it appears that there was this man, right, who had to choose between going through two doors, apparently, and the guard on one door always told the truth, and the guard on the other door always told a lie, and the thing was, behind one door was certain death, and behind the other door was freedom, and he didn't know which guard was which, and he could only ask them one question, and so what did he ask? The coach bounced over a pothole. The librarian turned over in his sleep. "'Sounds like psychotic Lord Hargan of Quirm to me,' said Ridcully after a while. "'That's right,' said Casanunda. "'He was a devil for jokes like that. "'How many students can you get in an Iron Maiden? "'That kind of thing.' "'So uh, this was at his place, then, was it?' said Ridcully. "'What?' "'I don't know,' said Ponder. "'Why not? You seem to know all about it.' "'I don't think it was anywhere. It's a puzzle.' "'Hang on,' said Casanunda. "'I think I've worked it out. "'One question, right?' "'Yes,' said Ponder, relieved. "'And he can ask either guard?' "'Yes!' "'Ah, oh, right. "'Well, in that case, he goes up to the smallest guard and says, "'Tell me which is the door to freedom "'if you don't want to see the colour of your kidneys "'and incidentally I'm walking through it behind you, "'so if you're trying for the Mr Clever Award, "'just remember who's going through it first. "'No, no, no!' "'Sounds logical to me,' said Ridcully. "'Very good thinking.' "'But but you haven't got a weapon.' "'Yes, I have. I wrested it from the guard while he was considering the question,' said Casanunda. "'Clever,' said Ridcully. "'Now that, Mr Stibbons, is logical thought. You could learn a lot from this man.' "'Dwarf?' "'Sorry, dwarf. He doesn't go on about parasite universes all the time?' "'Parallel!' snapped Ponder, who had developed a very strong suspicion that Ridcully was getting it wrong on purpose. "'Um, which, which ones are the parasite ones, then?' "'There aren't any! I mean, there aren't any Arch-Chancellor!' Ponder was 100% wrong about this. "'Parallel universes,' I said. "'Universes where things didn't happen, like...' He hesitated. "'Well, you know that girl?' "'What girl?' The girl you wanted to marry. How did you know that? You were talking about her just after lunch. Was I? More fool me. Well, what about her? Well, in a way, you did marry her, said Ponder. Ridcully shook his head. Nope. Pretty certain I, I, I didn't. You remember that sort of thing. Ah, but not in this universe. The librarian opened one eye. "'You suggested I nipped into some other universe to get married?' said Ridcully. "'No, I mean you got married in that universe and not in this universe,' said Ponder. "'Did I? What, a, a, a proper ceremony and everything?' "'Yes!' "'Hmm!' Ridcully stroked his beard. "'You sure?' "'Certain, Arch-Chancellor.' "'My word! I never knew that!' Ponder felt he was getting somewhere. So, yes? So, why don't I remember it? 
Ponder had been ready for this. "'Because the you in the other universe is different from the you here,' he said. "'It was a different you that got married. "'He's probably settled down somewhere. "'He's probably a great-granddad by now.' "'He never writes. I know that,' said Ridcully. "'And the bastard never invited me to the wedding.' "'Who? Him. But he's you, is he? "'You'd think I'd think of me, wouldn't you? "'What a bastard!' It wasn't that Ridcully was stupid. Truly stupid wizards have the life expectancy of a glass hammer. He had a quite powerful intellect, but it was powerful like a locomotive, and ran on rails, and was therefore almost impossible to steer. There are indeed such things as parallel universes, although parallel is hardly the right word. Universes swoop and spiral around one another like some mad weaving machine, or a squadron of Yossarians with middle ear trouble. And they branch... But, and this is important, not all the time. The universe doesn't much care if you tread on a butterfly. There are plenty more butterflies. Gods might note the fall of a sparrow, but they don't make any effort to catch them. Shoot the dictator and prevent the war? But the dictator is merely the tip of the whole festering boil of social pus from which dictators emerge. Shoot one, and there'll be another one along in a minute. Shoot him too? Why not shoot everyone and invade Poland? In fifty years, thirty years, ten years' time... The world will be very nearly back on its old course. History always has a great weight of inertia. Almost always. At circle time, when the walls between this and that are thinner, when there are all sorts of strange leakages, uh, then choices are made. Then the universe can be sent careening down a different leg of the well-known trousers of time. But there are also stagnant pools, universes cut off from past and future, they have to steal pasts and futures from other universes. Their only hope is to batten onto dynamic universes as they pass through the fragile period, as remora fish hang on to a passing shark. These are the parasite universes, and when the crop circles burst like raindrops, they have their chance. Lankra Castle was far bigger than it needed to be. It wasn't as if Lankra could have been bigger at one time. Inhospitable mountains crowded it on three sides, and a more or less sheer drop occupied where the fourth side would have been if a sheer drop hadn't been there. As far as anyone knew, the mountains didn't belong to anyone. They were just mountains. The castle rambled everywhere. No one even knew how far the cellars went. These days, everyone lived in the turrets and halls near the gate. I mean... Look at the crenellations, said Magrat. Whatn? The cut-out bits on top of the walls. You could hold off an army here. That's what a castle's for, innit, Mum? Magrat sighed. Can we stop the Mum, please? It makes you sound uncertain. Hmm, Mum? I mean, who is there to fight up here? Not even trolls could come over the mountains, and anyone coming up the road is asking for a rock on the head. Besides, you only have to cut down Lankra Bridge. Don't know, Mum. Kings have got to have castles, I suppose. Don't you ever wonder about anything, you stupid girl? What good does that do, Mum? I called her a stupid girl, thought Magrat. Royalty is rubbing off on me. Oh, well, she said. Where have we got to? We're going to need 2,000 yards of the blue chintz material with the little white flowers, said Millie. "'And we haven't even measured half the windows yet,' said Magrat, rolling up the tape measure. "'She looked down the length of the long gallery. 
The thing about it, the thing that made it so noticeable, the first thing anyone noticed about it, was that it was very long. It shared certain distinctive traits with the Great Hall and the Deep Dungeons. Its name was a perfectly accurate description. And it would be, as Nanny Og would say, a bugger to carpet. Why? Why a castle in Lancre? she said, mainly to herself, because talking to Millie was like talking to yourself. We've never fought anyone, apart from outside the tavern on a Saturday night? Couldn't say, I'm sure, Mum, said Millie. Magrat sighed. Where's the king today? He's opening Parliament, Mum. <sighs> Parliament? Which had been another of Verence's ideas. He'd tried to introduce Ephebian democracy to Lancre, giving the vote to everyone, or at least everyone who be of good report and who be male and hath forty years and owneth a house worth more than three and a half goats a year. Because there's no sense in being stupid about things and giving the vote to people who were poor or criminal or insane or female who'd only use it irresponsibly. It worked more or less, although the members of Parliament only turned up when they felt like it, and in any case, no one ever wrote anything down, and besides, no one ever disagreed with whatever Verence said because he was king. What's the point of having a king, they thought, if you have to rule yourself? He should do his job, even if he couldn't spell properly. No one was asking him to thatch roofs or milk cows, were they? I'm bored, Millie. Bored, bored, bored. I'm going for a walk in the gardens. Shall I fetch Sean with a trumpet? Not if you want to live. Not all the gardens had been dug up for agricultural experiments. There was, for example, the herb garden. To Magrat's expert eye, it was a pretty poor herb garden, since it just contained plants that flavoured food. And at that, Mrs Scorbick's repertoire stopped short at mint and sage. There wasn't a spring of vervain or yarrow or old man's trousers anywhere in it. And there was the famous maize, or at least it would be a famous maize. Verence had planted it because he'd heard that stately castles should have a maize and everyone agreed that once the bushes were a bit higher than their current height of about one foot, it would indeed be a very famous maize and people would be able to get lost in it without having to shut their eyes and bend down. Magret drifted disconsolately along the gravel path, her huge, wide dress leaving a smooth trail. There was a scream from the other side of the hedge, but Magret recognised the voice. There were certain traditions in Lancre Castle which she had learned. "'Good morning, Hodges Arg,' she said. The castle falconer appeared round the corner, dabbing at his face with a handkerchief. On his other arm, claws gripping like a torture instrument, was a bird. Evil red eyes glared at Magrat over a razor-sharp beak. "'I've got a new hawk,' said Hodges Arg proudly. "'It's a Lancre crow-hawk. They've never been tamed before. I'm taming it. I've already stopped it pecking my yar!' He flailed the hawk madly against the wall until it let go of his nose. Strictly speaking, Hodges Arg wasn't his real name. On the other hand, on the basis that someone's real name is the name they introduce themselves to you by, he was definitely Hodges Arg. This was because the hawks and falcons in the castle mews were all Lancre birds and therefore naturally possessed of a certain sodew independence of mind. After much patient breeding and training, Hodges Arg had managed to get them to let go of someone's wrist and now he was working on stopping them viciously attacking the person who had just been holding them, i.e., invariably, Hodges Arg. 
He was nevertheless a remarkably optimistic and good-natured man who lived for the day when his hawks would be the finest in the world. The hawks lived for the day when they could eat his other ear. "'I can see you're doing very well,' said Magrat. "'You don't think, do you, that they might respond better to cruelty?' "'Oh, no, miss,' said Hodges' Ark. "'You have to be kind. "'You have to build up a bond, you see. "'If they don't trust you, they... Ah! "'I'll just leave you to get on with it, then, shall I?' "'said Magrat, as feathers filled the air. "'Magrat had been gloomily unsurprised "'to learn that there was a precise class "'and gender distinction in Vulcanry. Verence, being king, was allowed a gear falcon, whatever the hell that was. Any earls in the vicinity could fly a peregrine, and priests were allowed sparrowhawks. Commoners were just allowed a stick to throw, if it wasn't a big stick. Magrat found herself wondering what Nanny Og would be allowed. A small chicken on a spring, probably. There was no specific falcon for a witch, but as a queen, the Lancra rules of falconry allowed her to fly the wowhawk, or lappet-faced warrior. It was small and short-sighted, and preferred to walk everywhere. It fainted at the sight of blood, and about twenty wowhawks could kill a pigeon, if it was a sick pigeon. She'd spent an hour with one on her wrist. It had wheezed at her, and eventually it had dozed off upside down. But at least Hodges' Ark had a job to do. The castle was full of people doing jobs. Everyone had something useful to do except Magrat. She just had to exist. Of course, everyone would talk to her, provided she talked to them first. But she was always interrupting something important, apart from ensuring the royal succession, which Verence had sent off for a book about. She... "'You just keep back there, girl. You don't want to come no further,' said a voice. Magrat bridled. "'Girl, one happens to be very nearly of the royal blood by marriage.' "'Maybe, but the bees don't know that,' said the voice." Magrat stopped. She'd stepped out beyond what were the gardens from the point of view of the royal family, and into what were the gardens from the point of view of everyone else, beyond the world of hedges and topiary and herb gardens, and into the world of old sheds, piles of flower pots, compost, and just here, beehives. One of the hives had the lid off. Beside it, in the middle of a brown cloud, smoking his special bee pipe, was Mr. Brooks. Oh, she said, it's you, Mr. Brooks. Technically, Mr. Brooks was the royal beekeeper, but the relationship was a careful one. For one thing, although most of the staff were called by their last name, Mr. Brooks shared with the cook and the butler the privilege of an honorific. Besides, Mr. Brooks had secret powers. He knew all about honey flows and the mating of queens. He knew about swarms and how to destroy wasps' nests. He got the general respect shown to those like witches and blacksmiths, whose responsibilities are not entirely to the world of the humdrum and everyday, people who in fact know things that others don't about things that others can't fathom. And he was generally found doing something fiddly with the hives, ambling across the kingdom in pursuit of a swarm, or smoking his pipe in his secret shed which smelt of old honey and wasp poison. You didn't offend Mr. Brooks, not unless you wanted swarms in your privy while he sat cackling in his shed. He carefully replaced the lid on the hive and walked away. A few bees escaped from the gaping holes in his beekeeping veil. "'Afternoon, your ladyship,' he conceded. "'Hello, Mr. Brooks. What have you been doing?' Mr. Brooks opened the door of his secret shed and rummaged about inside. "'They're late swarming,' said the beekeeper. "'I was just checking up on them. Fancy a cup of tea, girl?' You couldn't stand on ceremony with Mr. Brooks. He treated everyone as an equal, or more often as a slight inferior.' It probably came of ruling thousands every day. 
and at least she could talk to him. Mr. Brooks had always seemed to her as close to a witch as it was possible to be while still being male. The shed was stuffed full of bits of hive, mysterious torture instruments for extracting honey, old jars, and a small stove on which a grubby teapot steamed next to a huge saucepan. He took her silence for acceptance and poured out two mugs. Is it herbal? she quavered. Bugger if I know. It's just brown leaves out of a tin. Magrat looked uncertainly into a mug which pure tannin was staining brown, but she rallied. One thing you had to do when you were queen, she knew, was put commoners at their ease. She cast around for some easeful question. It must be very interesting, um, being a beekeeper, she said. Yes, it is. One's often wondered... What? Um, uh, how do you actually milk them? The unicorn prowled through the forest. It felt blind and out of place. This wasn't a proper land. The sky was blue, not flaming with all the colours of the aurora. And time was passing. To a creature not born subject to time, it was a sensation not unakin to falling. It could feel its mistress inside its head, too. That was worse even than the passing of time. In short, it was mad. Magrat sat with her mouth open. "'I thought queens were born,' she said. "'Oh, no,' said Mr. Brooks. "'There ain't no such thing as a queen egg. "'The bees just decides to feed one of them up as a queen. "'Feeds them royal jelly. "'What happens if they don't?' "'Then it just becomes an ordinary worker, your ladyship,' said Brooks, "'with a suspiciously republican grin. "'Lucky for it,' Magrat thought. "'So they have a new queen, and then what happens to the old one?' Oh, usually the old girl swarms, said Mr. Brooks, pushes off and takes some of the colony with her. I must have seen a thousand swarms, me. Never seen a royal swarm, though. What's a royal swarm? Can't say for sure. It's in some of the old bee books. A swarm of swarms. It's something to see, they say. The old beekeeper looked wistful for a moment. "'Course,' he went on, writing himself, "'the real fun starts if the weather's bad "'and the old queen can't swarm, right?' "'He moved his hand in a sly circular motion. "'What happens then is the two queens, "'that's the old queen, right, and the new queen, "'the two queens start a-stalking one another among the combs, "'with the rain a-drumming on the roof of the hive "'and the business of the hive a-going on all around them.' Mr. Brooks moved his hands graphically, and Magrat leaned forward. All among the combs, the drones all humming, and all the time they can see one another, cos they can tell, see, and then they spots one another, and... Yes? Yes? said Magrat, leaning forward. Slash! Stab! Magrat hit her head on the wall of the hut. Can't have more than one queen in a hive, said Mr. Brooks, calmly. Magrat looked out at the hives. She'd always liked the look of beehives, up until now. "'Many's the time I've found a dead queen in front of the hive after a spell of wet weather,' said Mr. Brooks happily. "'Can't abide another queen around a place, you know. And it's a right old battle, too. The old queen's more cunning, but the new queen, she's really got everything to fight for.' "'Sorry? If she wants to be mated?' "'Oh!' 
"'But it gets really interesting in the autumn,' said Mr. Brooks. "'Hive don't need any dead weight in the winter sea, "'and there's all these drones hanging around not doing anything, "'so the workers drag all the drones down to the hive entrance, see, "'and they bite their... "'Stop! This is horrible,' said Magrat. "'I thought beekeeping was, well, nice.' "'Of course, that's around the time of year when the bees wear out,' said Mr. Brooks. "'What happens is, see, your basic bee, why, it works till it can't work no more. "'And you'll see a lot of old workers a-crawling around in front of the hive, "'cause stop it. Honestly, this is too much. I, I, I'm queen, you know, almost.' "'Sorry, miss,' said Mr. Brooks. "'I thought you wanted to know a bit about beekeeping.' "'Yes, but not, not this.' Magrat swept out. Oh, I dunno, said Mr. Brooks. Does you good to get close to nature. He shook his head cheerfully as she disappeared among the hedges. Can't have more than one queen in a hive, he said. Slash stab. <laughs> From somewhere in the distance came the scream of Hodge's arg as nature got close to him. Crop circles opened everywhere. Now the universes swung into line. They ceased their boiling spaghetti dance, and to pass through this chicane of history, charged forward neck and neck in their race across the rubber sheet of incontinent time. At such time, as Ponder Stibbons dimly perceived, they had an effect on one another. Shafts of reality crackled back and forward as the universes jostled for position. If you were someone who had trained their mind to be the finest of receivers, and were running it at the moment with the gain turned up until the knob broke, you might pick up some very strange signals indeed. The clock ticked. Granny Weatherwax sat in front of the open box reading. Occasionally she stopped and closed her eyes and pinched her nose. Not knowing the future was bad enough, but at least she understood why. Now she was getting flashes of déjà vu. It had been going on all week. But they weren't her déjà vus. She was getting them for the first time, as it were. Flashes of memory that couldn't have existed. Couldn't have existed. She was Esme Weatherwax, sane as a brick always had been. She'd never been... There was a knock at the door. She blinked, glad to be free of those thoughts. It took her a second or two to focus on the present. Then she folded up the paper, slipped it into its envelope, pushed the envelope back into its bundle, put the bundle into the box, locked the box with a small key which she hung over the fireplace, and walked to the door. She did a last-minute check to make sure she hadn't absent-mindedly taken all her clothes off or something, and opened it. Evening, said Nanny Og, holding out a bowl with a cloth over it. I've brung you some... Granny Weatherwax was looking past her. Who are these people? she said. The three girls looked embarrassed. See, they came round my house and said, Nanny Og began. Don't tell me, let me guess, said Granny. She strode out and inspected the trio. Well, 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 she said. My word, my word. Three girls who want to be witches, am I right? Her voice went falsetto. Oh, please, Mrs. Og, we have seen the error of our ways. We want to learn proper witchcraft. Yes? Yes, something like that, said Nanny. But this is witchcraft, said Granny Weatherwax. It's not, it's not a game of conkers. Oh, dearing, dearie me. She walked along the very short row of trembling girls. What's your name, girl? 
Magenta frottage, ma'am. I bet that's not what your mum calls you. Magenta looked at her feet. She calls me violet, ma'am. Well, it's a better colour than magenta, said Granny. Want to be a bit mysterious, eh? Want to make folks feel you've got a grip on the occult? Can you do magic? Your friend taught you anything, did she? Knock my hat off. What, ma'am? Granny Weatherwax stood back and turned around. Knock it off! I ain't trying to stop you. Go on. Magenta shading to violet, shaded to pink. Uh, I never got the hang of the psycho thingy. Oh, dear. Well, just let's see what the rest can do. Who are you, girl? I'm Anita, ma'am. Such a pretty name. Let's see what you can do. Amanita looked around nervously. Um, I, I, I don't think I can while you're watching me, she began. That's a shame. What about you on the end? Agnes Knit, said Agnes, who was much faster on the uptake than the other two, and saw that there was no point in pushing Perdita. Go on then, try. Agnes concentrated. Oh, dearie, dearie me, said Granny, and my hat's still on. Show them, Gither. Nanny Og sighed, picked up a piece of fallen branch, and hurled it at Granny's hat. Granny caught the stick in midair. But, but you said we had to use magic, Amanita began. No, I didn't, said Granny. But anyone could have done that, said Magenta. Yes, but that's not the point, said Granny. The point is that you didn't. She smiled, which was unusual for her. Look, I don't want to be nasty to you. You're young. The world's full of things you could be doing. You don't want to be witches. Not if you knew what it means. Now just go away. Go home. Don't try the paranormal until you know what's normal. Go on, run along. But that's just trickery. That's what Diamanda said. You just use words and trickery, Magenta protested. Granny raised a hand. In the trees, the birds stopped singing. Githa? Nanny Og gripped her own hat brim defensively. Esme, listen, this hat cost me two whole dollars. The boom echoed through the woods. Bits of hat lining zigzagged gently out of the sky. Granny pointed her finger at the girls who tried to lean out of the way. Now, she said, why don't you go and see to your friend? She was beat. She probably ain't very happy. That's no time to go leaving people. They still stared at her. Her finger seemed to fascinate them. I just asked you to go home. Perfectly reasonable voice. Do you want me to shout? They turned and ran. Nanny Og glumly pushed her hand through the stricken hat brim. It took me ages to get that pig cure together. She mumbled. You need eight types of leaves. Willow leaves, tansy leaves, old man's trouser leaves. I was collecting them all day. It's not as though leaves grow on trees. Granny Weatherwax watched the disappearing girls. Nanny Og paused, then she said, Takes you back, eh? I remember when I was fifteen, standing in front of old Biddy Spective, and she said in that voice of hers, You want to be a... a what? And I was that frightened, I nearly whittled. I never stood in front of anyone, said Granny Weatherwax distantly. I camped on old Nanny Gripe's garden until she promised to tell me everything she knew. <laughs> that took her a week, and I had the afternoons free. You mean 
You weren't chosen? Me? Nah, I chose, said Granny. The face she turned to Nanny Og was one she wouldn't forget in a hurry, although she might try. I chose, Githa Og, and I want that you should know this right now. Whatever happens, I ain't never regretted anything. Never regretted one single thing, right? If you say so, Esme. What is magic? There is the wizard's explanation, which comes in two forms, depending on the age of the wizard. Older wizards talk about candles, circles, planets, stars, bananas, chants, runes, and the importance of having at least four good meals every day. Younger wizards, particularly the pale ones who spend most of their time in the high-energy magic building, chatter at length about fluxes in the morphic nature of the universe, the essentially impermanent quality of even the most apparently rigid time-space framework, the implausibility of reality, and so on. What this means is that they've got hold of something hot, and are gabbling the physics as they go along. It was at the high-energy magic building that the Thaum, hitherto believed to be the smallest possible particle of magic, was successfully demonstrated to be made up of reasons or reality fragments. Currently, research indicates that each reason, or thingy, is itself made up of a combination of at least five flavours known as up, down, sideways, sex appeal and peppermint. It was almost midnight. The Amanda ran up the hill towards the dancers, the briars and heather tearing at her dress. The humiliation banged back and forth in her skull. Stupid, malicious old women. And stupid people, too. She'd won. According to the rules, she'd won. But everyone had laughed at her. That stung. The recollection of those stupid faces, all grinning, and everyone supporting those horrible old women who had no idea about the meaning of witchcraft and what it could become. She'd show them. Ahead of her, the dancers were dark against the moonlit clouds. Nanny Og looked under her bed in case there was a man there. Well, you never knew your luck. She was going to have an early night. It had been a busy day. There was a jar of boiled sweets by her bed, and a thick glass bottle of the clear fluid from her complicated still out behind the woodshed. It wasn't exactly whiskey, and it wasn't exactly gin, but it was exactly 90% proof and a great comfort during those worrying moments that sometimes occurred around 3am when you woke up and forgot who you were. After a glass of the clear liquid, you still didn't remember who you were, but that was all right now because you were someone else anyway. She plumped up the four pillows, kicked her fluffy slippers into the corner, and pulled the blankets over her head, creating a small, warm and slightly rank cave. She sucked a boiled sweet. Nanny had only one tooth left, and that had taken all she could throw at it for many years, so a sweet at bedtime wasn't going to worry it much. After a few seconds, a sense of pressure on her feet indicated that the cat Grebo had taken up his accustomed place on the end of the bed. Grebo always slept on Nanny's bed. The way he'd affectionately tried to claw your eyeballs out in the morning was as good as an alarm clock, but she always left a window open all night in case he wanted to go out and disembowel something, bless him. Well, well, elves... They couldn't hear you say the word inside your head anyway. At least, not unless they were real close. She really thought they'd seen the last of them. How long was it now? Must be hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe thousands. Witches didn't like to talk about it because they'd made a big mistake about the elves. They'd seen through the buggers in the end, of course, but it had been a close thing. 
and there'd been a lot of witches in those days. They'd been able to stop them at every turn, make life in this world too hot for them, fought them with iron. Nothing elvish could stand iron. It blinded them or something, blinded them all over. There weren't many witches now, not proper witches. More of a problem, though, was that people didn't seem to be able to remember what it was like with the elves around. Life was certainly more interesting then, but usually because it was shorter. And it was more colourful, if you liked the colour of blood. It got so people didn't even dare talk openly about the bastards. You said, the shining ones. You said, the fair folk. And you spat and touched iron. But generations later you forgot about the spitting and the iron, and you forgot why you used those names for them, and you remembered only that they were beautiful. Yes, there'd been a lot of witches in them days. Too many women found an empty cradle or a husband that never came home from the hunt. Had been the hunt. Elves, the bastards. And yet, and yet somehow, yes, they did things to memory. Nanny Og turned over in bed. Grebo growled in protest. Take dwarves and trolls, for e.g. people said, Oh, you can't trust them. Trolls are okay if you've got them in front of you, and some of them are decent enough in their way, but they're cowardly and stupid. And as for dwarfs, well, they're greedy and devious devils, all right, fair enough. Sometimes you meet one of the little clever sods, that's not too bad, but overall they're no better than trolls. In fact, they're just like us. But they ain't any prettier to look at and they've got no style, and we're stupid and the memory plays tricks and we remember the elves for their beauty and the way they move and forget what they were. We're like mice, saying, Say what you like, cats have got real style. People never quaked in their beds for fear of dwarfs. They never hid under the stairs from trolls. They might have chased them out of the hen-house, but trolls and dwarfs were never any more than a bloody nuisance. They were never a terror in the night. We only remembers that the elves sang. We forgets what it was they were singing about. Nanny Og turned over again. There was a slithering noise from the end of the bed and a muffled yowl as Grebo hit the floor. And Nanny sat up. Get your walking paws on, you young fella be lad, we're going out. As she passed through the midnight kitchen, she paused, took one of the big black flat irons from the hob by the fire, and attached it to a length of clothesline. For all her life she'd walked at night through Lancro with no thought of carrying a weapon of any sort. Of course, for most of that time she'd recognisably been a witch, and any importunate prowler would have ended up taking his essentials away in a paper bag, but even so it was generally true of any woman in Lancro. Man, too, come to that. Now she could sense her own fear. The elves were coming back all right, casting their shadows before them. Diamanda reached the crest of the hill. She paused. She wouldn't put it past that old weatherwax woman to have followed her. She felt sure there had been something tracking her in the woods. There was no one else around. She turned. Evening, miss. Oh, you, you did follow me. Granny got to her feet from the shadow of the piper, where she had been sitting quite invisibly in the blackness. Learned that from my dad, she said. When he went hunting, he always used to say a bad hunter chases, a good hunter waits. Oh, so you're hunting me now? No, I was just waiting. I knew you'd come up here. You haven't got anywhere else to go. You've come to call her, haven't you? Let me see your hands. It wasn't a request, it was a command. 
The Amanda found her hands moving of their own accord. Before she could pull them back, the old woman had grabbed them and held them firmly. Her skin felt like sacking. "'Never done a hard day's work in your life, have you?' said Granny pleasantly. "'Never picked cabbages with the ice on them, or dug a grave, or milked a cow, or laid out a corpse.' "'You don't have to do all that to be a witch,' the Amanda snapped. "'Did I say so?' And let me tell you something about beautiful women in red with stars in their hair, and probably moons too, and voices in your head when you slept, and power when you came up here. She offered you lots of power, I expect. All you wanted for free. The Amanda was silent. Because it happened before. There's always someone who'll listen. Granny Weatherwax's eyes seemed to lose their focus. When you're lonely, and people around you seem too stupid for words, and the world is full of secrets that no one will tell you. Are you reading my mind? Yours? Granny's attention snapped back, and her voice lost its distant quality. <laughs> Flowers and such like, dancing about without your drawers on, mucking about with cards and bits of string. And it worked, I expect. She gave you power for a while. Oh, she must have laughed. And then there is less power and more price. And then no power. And you're paying every day. They always take more than they give. And what they give has less than no value. And they end up taking everything. What they like to get from us is our fear. What they want from us most of all is our belief. If you call them, they will come. You'll give them a channel if you call them here at circle time, where the world's thin enough to hear. The power in the dancers is weak enough now as it is, and I'm not having the... the... the lords and ladies back. The Amanda opened her mouth. I ain't finished yet. You're a bright girl, lots of things you could be doing, but you don't want to be a witch. It's not an easy life. You, you mad old woman, you've got it all wrong. Elves aren't like that. Don't say the word, don't say the word, they come when called. Good. Elf, 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 elf. Granny slapped her face hard. Even you knows that's stupid and childish, she said. Now you listen to me. If you stay here, there's to be none of this stuff anymore. Or you can go somewhere else and find a future. Be a great lady, you've got the mind for it. And maybe you'll come back in ten years loaded down with jewels and stuff and lord it over all us stay-at-homes, and that will be fine. But if you stay here and keep trying to call the, the lords and ladies, then you'll be up against me again. Not playing stupid games in the daylight, but real witchcraft. Not messing around with moons and circles, but the true stuff. Out of the blood and the bone and out of the head. And you don't know nothing about that, right? And it don't allow for mercy. The Amanda looked up. Her face was red where the slap had landed. Go, she said. Granny reacted a second too late. The Amanda darted between the stones. You stupid child, not that way! The figure was already getting smaller, even though it appeared to be only a few feet away. Oh, drat! Granny dived after her and heard her skirt rip as the pocket tore. The poker she'd brought along whirred away and clanked against one of the dancers. There was a series of jerks and tings as the hobnails tore out of her boots and sped towards the stones. No iron could go through the stones, no iron at all. 
Granny was already racing over the turf when she realised what that meant. But it didn't matter. She'd made a choice. There was a feeling of dislocation as directions danced and twirled around, and then snow underfoot. It was white. It had to be white because it was snow, but patterns of colour moved across it, reflecting the wild dance of the permanent aurora in the sky. Diamanda was struggling. Her footwear was barely suitable for a city summer, and certainly not for a foot of snow. Whereas Granny Weatherwax's boots, even without their hobnails, could have survived a trot across lava. Even so, the muscles that were propelling them had been doing it for too long. Diamanda was outrunning her. More snow was falling out of a night sky. There was a ring of riders waiting a little way from the stones, with the Queen slightly ahead. Every witch knew her, or the shape of her. Diamanda tripped and fell, and then managed to bring herself up to a kneeling position. Granny stopped. The Queen's horse whinnied. "'Kneel before your Queen, you,' said the elf. She was wearing red with a copper crown in her hair. "'Shan't. Won't,' said Granny Weatherwax. "'You are in my kingdom, woman,' said the Queen. "'You do not come or go without the leave of me. You will kneel.' "'I come and go without the leave of anyone,' said Granny Weatherwax. "'Never done it before, ain't starting now.' She put her hand on dear Amanda's shoulder. "'These are your elves,' she said. "'Beautiful, ain't they?' The warriors must have been more than two metres tall. They did not wear clothes so much as items strung together, scraps of fur, bronze plates, strings of brightly coloured feathers. Blue and green tattoos covered most of their exposed skin. Several of them held drawn bows, the tips of their arrows following Granny's every move. Their hair massed around their heads like a halo, thick with grease. And although their faces were indeed the most beautiful Diamanda had ever seen, it was beginning to creep over her that there was something subtly wrong, some quirk of expression that did not quite fit. "'The only reason we're still alive now is that we're more fun alive than dead.' said Granny's voice behind her. "'You know you shouldn't listen to the crabbed old woman,' said the Queen. "'What can she offer?' "'More than snow in summertime,' said Granny. "'Look at their eyes. Look at their eyes.' The Queen dismounted. "'Take my hand, child,' she said. Diamanda stuck out a hand gingerly. There was something about the eyes. It wasn't the shape or the colour. There was no evil glint.' But there was a look. It was such a look that a microbe might encounter if it could see up from the bottom end of the microscope. It said, You are nothing. It said, You are flawed. You have no value. It said, You are animal. It said, Perhaps you may be a pet, or perhaps you may be a quarry. It said, And the choice is not yours. She tried to pull her hand away. Get out of her mind, old crone. Granny's face was running with sweat. I ain't in her mind, elf. I'm keeping you out. The Queen smiled. It was the most beautiful smile Diamanda had ever seen. And you have some power too, amazing. I never thought you'd amount to anything, Esmeralda Weatherwax. But it's no good here. Kill them both, uh, but not at the same time. Let the other one watch. She climbed onto her horse again, turned it round, and galloped off. Two of the elves dismounted, drawing thin bronze daggers from their belts. "'Well, that's about it, then,' said Granny Weatherwax as the warriors approached. She dropped her voice. "'When the time comes,' she said. 
run. What time? You'll know. End of CD 3